0: John, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord.
1: They say that high blood pressure is the silent killer because so many people have it and don't know about it. And the symptoms aren't obvious, they're complex, they're hidden, and so are the causes. You know, I think shame is the silent killer of the soul. If uh, hypertension is the silent killer of the body, I think shame is the silent killer of the soul. Uh, I think it's something that so many of us struggle with. Sorry, my mic went out as well tonight. So just got it all going on here. Um, I'm gonna put this over here. There we go. It's something that we're not always aware. That we're struggling with, but actually affects many of us in very profound ways. You're probably familiar with a classic definition of shame. Shame is feeling bad yourself, whereas guilt is feeling bad for something you have done. That's kind of the classic definition. Guilt is, you know, I am hiding. I have done something that I shouldn't have done. Um, I'm not where I need to be with God right now. And I confess that. That's guilt. That's actually a good thing, right? That's a gift of God. That leads us to health and wholeness. Shame is... Something is really wrong with me. I'm not, I'm not lovable, uh, God could never forgive me. I'm kind of dirty as a, as a person. See the difference? It's a very important distinction, and, it, and it's very, very subtle. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and salvation over sin. That's a good thing. You know, that's why we have time for confession. That is a good thing. Uh, if if you've recognized something in your life that is holding you back from loving God, loving others, something in your life that's keeping you from becoming what you're supposed to be, keeping your marriage from being what it's supposed to be, keeping your single journey what it's supposed to be, uh, and you find that and you bring it into the light and you confess it and you yield it, that's a good thing, right? That, that, and there is a degree of sorrow that we should feel when we, when we sin, when we're not becoming what we're supposed to be. That's okay to feel some sorrow over sin. But Paul also talks about a godly, or rather a worldly sorrow that leads to death. See, that's a very different thing. That's not Father, I, I have sinned. I am so sorry. Forgive me. You know, and Romans 5-8 is all about this. Those wonderful passages about there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, the Holy Spirit crying out in our heart, Abba, Father, the love of God flowing into our heart. These beautiful passages that talk about what it's like to be forgiven and reconciled to God. That's what it's supposed to feel like when we sin. There's all those great passages in the Old Testament about God taking your sin and throwing it into the depths of the ocean or putting it behind his back or putting it as far apart as the east is from the west. That's the glory of the gospel, right? That that we can sin and be forgiven. That's That's our hope. But there's a counterfeit to that where I always feel that there's something wrong with me. There's something dirty about me. There's something unacceptable in me. And usually that's accompanied with, at least in Western culture, I'd be interested to know if this is true in other cultures, usually that's accompanied with, I need to hide it and I need to pedal faster. And sometimes there's a third accompanying reality, and that is, I am so bad, I need to punish myself. And usually we do that in our minds. I I went out to the monastery, I think I told you this uh, last year, and every year I try to study a certain theme. And last year I was studying shame, and I brought five great books on shame, and I was sitting there in my fourth or fifth book on shame, and I was reading them for you um, so that I could, I could help you um, deal with your shame. And then all of a sudden, I, I just felt these tears well up in my eye. And I actually had a memory of something I'd forgotten. And I felt very shameful about it. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm struggling with shame. And this is why it's the silent killer. It's so subtle. I, I would bet that almost everyone in this room... Is carrying this virus around, but you're so used to it, you're so used to the way that you talk to yourself that you don't realize you've got a virus. And the sources are just so many, it can come from so many places. There's vocational shame, right? I'm not in a career that matches my skills, I'm not living up to my potential. There's body shame. Something is wrong with me. I don't look like the model on the hair product box. With the windblown hair, it took 26 shots to get a picture of. Um, Sexual shame. You know, I have a sexual past. I'm a bad person. I've been sexually abused. I'm a bad person. I've made bad sexual choices. I'm a bad person. I have sexual desires. I'm a bad person. Spiritual shame. I don't relate to God like everybody else. I must be less of a Christian. Family shame. Uh, I'm not in a family. I'm single. Something's wrong with me. I'm in a family, but my kids aren't as successful as all the other families on Instagram and Facebook. Something is wrong with me. Economic shame. I can't even make enough to care for my family. Educational shame. (laughs) I'm flawed. I'm not as educated as everybody else. Gender shame. My voice is not valued because I'm, I'm a woman. I'm not as masculine as other men are. Racial shame. Society judges me because I'm brown or black or red or yellow and I'm beginning to think they're right. Addiction shame. I cannot stop this destructive habit. I'm a terrible person. Age shame. I'm getting older. Our society values the young. I'm less. I can't get my calls returned. Illness shame. I have a chronic illness. I'm less of a person as a result. So where do you struggle with shame? Where do you hear that voice that constantly tells you you're flawed or not enough? And even more importantly, how does Jesus heal shame? Well, that's what we're going to look at in this story tonight, and and uh, Jesus is healing a woman of her shame. He's been teaching at the temple during the Feast of Booths. And the Pharisees dragged this woman out, caught in adultery. They're setting a trap for him. They want to turn the crowds against him. The law of Moses condemned uh, this woman for committing adultery. And the man, by the way, we don't see the man in the story, which is a whole other sermon. Will Jesus follow the law or will he show compassion and break the law? Now, what we notice here is that the religious authorities are the ones shaming the woman. They offer her no opportunity for confession or repentance. It's this. You have not met the standard. You are a bad person. You must be destroyed. That's the voice of shame. You are bad. Therefore, we will destroy you. That is the voice of shame. Now Paul actually talks about this religious system uh, in Second in Corinthians chapter 3. And listen to this contrast. He calls it a ministry of death. He says, God has made us ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying By the time Jesus came, the whole religious system had become a ministry of death. A ministry of death. And the new covenant came, the Spirit came to give life. What's the purpose of the law in the new covenant? Romans 6, to drive us to Jesus. Now, I don't know if I can say this quite right. I find this the most tragic irony of the Christian existence of our day. On the one hand, God has made it possible for us to be forgiven, that's the work of the cross. We celebrate the work of the cross. And most of us, if you've been a Christian for any time at all, you know this glorious good news that not only does he forgive us of our our sins, he cleanses us, he fills us with the Holy Spirit, he adopts us into the family, he relates to us as a son or a daughter. It's a beautiful, 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 beautiful thing. However, many times the religion that preaches that gospel message, gets distorted and twisted, I would say, by a demonic spirit into an instrument of shame. Man, this is subtle, friends. This is so subtle. We don't try to do it. I'm sure I've done it. We don't try to do it, but it happens. And I'm going to give you some illustrations here. Because in this kind of a religious system, the message that the Pharisees share with a woman is, "You have not met the standard and deserve to die," and that's the message that starts coming out through this religious system. Now, I'm going to make up a couple of illustrations, and these are just composite people that I've, no one in particular, but based on experiences over the years. Imagine a devout young woman named Sally. Now, the church wants Sally to be sexually pure. That's a good thing, right? We want people to be sexually pure. So what do we do? Well, we do everything we can when Sally's a young woman to to, to get her to save herself sexually for her spouse. And so we devote intense resources to this and we talk about it in Sunday school, in devotions, at youth retreats, even through music and film. And we do everything we can to say, Sally, be sexually pure. And that's a good goal. Well, she grows up under this teaching. But somehow just underneath the beauty of the message of sexual purity is something Sally picks up that says that her sexuality is filthy. And so she meets a man, and she feels sexual desires, and she marries the man, and then she starts to explore her sexuality, but she cannot do it because there is a voice in her head that says it's all filthy. Only a whore enjoys it. And she feels shame. Imagine a devout young man, Bill. Very active in his church, wants to please God and others. The community he grows up in is oriented towards social justice and embraces an ethic of poverty. He hears many sermons about the evils of wealth, about how Jesus lived among the poor. He spends hours with homeless people. He cuts his hair like Shane Claiborne. When he graduates from college, he gets a degree from social work. He moves into an at-risk neighborhood. He begins living in an intentional community. He has kids sleeping on his couch. He has addicts on his front porch. He is living for Jesus. But Bill has a secret that he is totally ashamed of telling any other living human being. The secret is, he reads the Wall Street Journal. And he's good with numbers. And he likes the markets. And he's been investing on the side. And this is the most shameful part. He's made money. And if anybody would know, they'd judge him. And as the 20s go by and he's in his 30s and he gets sick of the addict on his couch, he realizes he really wants to get an MBA and move out of the neighborhood and get some property. And he feels so ashamed. Imagine a devout father named Ted. Good man, loves his wife and children well, but he feels so ashamed because he, he thinks, is not a strong Christian man. He tries to cover it up, but Ted, and this is so shameful, Ted likes things women like. God forbid he likes things women like. He is aware of his feelings. He likes deep conversations. He doesn't care much about sports. He doesn't like to hit people or kill things or work on his car. And this is so shameful. He's an extraordinary selfless servant to his wife and children, but he's not really much of a leader in the home. Actually, his wife is a stronger leader, and he feels great shame about this. Over the years, he's tried to change. When he was in youth group, they brought in a former Marine who talked to the men at a guy's retreat about being a warrior for Jesus. And then one day, they brought in a guy who was a bodybuilder, and he smashed bricks with his head for Jesus. And, and Ted just never thought that was very fun. And a Christian marriage counselor told him once that he was weak because he was not being the head of his home, and Ted feels shame. Finally imagine a devout mother named Sue. Ever since Sue was a little girl, she was good at running things. She organized class picnics, she sold more girl, girl Scout cookies than anybody else. She became president of her class. She had an internship in DC. She she was preparing to go to law school, and then she had a very powerful conversion experience, and she became a part of a Christian community that deeply valued the Christian family. And nearly everyone in the church was married or married very early, and they quickly had many children. She was surrounded by the love of this great church. The people in the church were truly happy. Now, Sue had always been happy as a single person and frankly had not really considered marriage. But the many sermons her pastor preached on marriage combined with great examples all around her led her to abandon her plans for law school, marry and begin having lots of kids. And Sue's 42 and she feels trapped. And she is so ashamed that she would ever say to herself, That sometimes she's wondered what she's done. And she's wondering if she might go back to law school now, but she feels shame about this as well. So, all of these are good things, right? They're all good things. But there's something about a toxic faith community that can twist them into into shame. And one of the reasons it's so easy to catch is we do have a human propensity for self-punishment. We are hardwired with this belief that I've done wrong. I must flagellate myself as a way of atoning for it. Uh, in one year we were going out to the monastery, and the, the guy that was taking us that year said, come with me, I want to show you a penitente church. And I said, what's a penitente church? And we sort of drove up there, we go into this little rural church, there's a back room. He says, I was here last Easter, and here's what happened. On Easter, in the middle of the night, uh, all the men went into the back room, began beating themselves with scourges, The blood was flowing all over the floor, and then I wasn't allowed to see it, but I stayed in the back room, and I was told that this happens every year. Then they actually nailed one of the men to the cross. This happens every year in a sect in New Mexico. Now, we're rightly horrified by that. I mean, where's the grace there? Why on earth would you beat yourself? Beloved, you do it psychologically to yourself all the time. So do I. So do I. We do the same doggone thing. We just beat ourselves. Because we don't think the cross was enough. You know, if somebody could put a screen on, a screen up there, and right now, we could just flash up there the things you've said to yourself today. I guarantee you, we would be appalled at the way we talk to ourselves. You don't talk to your dog the way you talk to yourself, it's shame. But we should be sad over our sin, Doug, right? Yes, 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 yes. There's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about toxic, icky, vile shame that makes you hate yourself. And eventually the shamers come to live in our heads, right? These Pharisees are all set up shop in our head and they have a judging voice that is always pointing out whatever's flawed in me or broken or twisted you know it's not the holy spirit because the holy spirit moves me to a godly sorrow that leads to repentance leads to life the spirit gives life a toxic shaming voice leads to death that's the difference to death and hiding so do you know what the pharisees in your head are saying to you That's a really important question because you're so used to what they're saying that you think it is the Spirit. It's not the Spirit if it leads to death. It's not the spirit if it leads to hiding. It's not the spirit if it leads to self-hatred. It's not the spirit if it leads to remembering something you did 20 years ago, and therefore you need to beat yourself up with self precating comments or eating poorly or hurting yourself in some other way. Why does someone I know call me recently and say, I want to cut myself? Why? Because the Pharisees are telling her, She's horrible, and so she has to crucify herself. Well, the poor woman is lying in the dirt, probably half-closed at this point, bleeding, waiting to be stoned by the angry religious leaders who surround her, and Jesus bends down and starts to write in the dirt. Now, what does he write we don't know. But it's a very interesting moment as everything comes to a climax and the Lord just performs this kind of street theater. They have the upper hand. They have the woman. They have the law. They have the crowd. They have all the power. And Jesus acts by not acting. He de the play. He lets time slow down as the old gives way to the new. I like to think he draws the words, I love you. Before the woman in the dirt. We do know that he says, He who is without sin cast the first stone. (laughs) And they all leave, beginning with the older ones. What has he done? He has just pointed to the gospel. He has just reminded them that everyone is in need of grace and that we are all sinners, that we all need forgiving. And the old ones know that the best. Because when we're aware of our own sin, we're much less likely to shame others. And Jesus says, has anyone condemned you? She says, no one, my Lord, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, he's not just overlooking sin. It's not that he doesn't care about sin. Whatever this woman was involved in, he wants her to change her life, to move on. But he says, I do not condemn you. And this is a model of spiritual health. You can deal with sin. You can deal with the worst thing you ever did. And you might think of that right now to make this sermon come alive. What is the absolute worst thing you ever, ever, ever did? Jesus says, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Do you believe that? Your divorce? That one? You believe that one? Your addiction? Your greed? Your betrayal? The things you said to your mom you could never get back? Go and sin no more. Therefore, I do not condemn you. That's a spiritually healthy way of dealing with sin. And a spiritually healthy church is a community where sin is taken seriously, but the community does not live under a cloud of shame. I think I've been all my life wondering, how do you kind of work all this out? How do you live in a community like this? I just wanted to end with a couple of things I'm learning about this. How do we join God in healing our shame? Number one, understand the difference between guilt and shame. It's just a really important distinction. Guilt is when I've done something wrong. Shame is when I am wrong. Understand the difference. Romans 5 through 8, great scripture to study. The book by Lewis Smeds, uh, Shame and Grace. The best discussion of it I've ever seen. Second, embrace the work of the cross. We've got to start there. We can't go past that. You've got to understand the cross. You've got to understand how Christ forgave you fully and completely and totally at the cross. That's why you don't need to flagellate yourself. Book of Romans, book of Ephesians, book of Galatians. Love to have someone lead us in a good study of one of those books. Also, Bible Study Fellowship is is in the middle of a study of Romans right now, and you can join that. Third, cultivate a personal experiential relationship with Jesus Christ. Here here is my observation, is that when you begin to encounter Christ in personal ways, intimate ways, shame melts away. And for me, one of the things I've been doing lately is using more imagination in my prayer time. I just sit in a passage, read it over and over again. I try to imagine myself there. This week, I tried to imagine Jesus talking to this woman. I try to imagine what his eyes look like. I try to imagine what the weather looks like. I try to imagine what the Pharisees look like. And every time I do that, and every time I look at Jesus, I feel and encounter his love. Fourth, identify the shaming voices in your head. What are they saying to you? And, and I'd encourage you even to write them out. We've got to get out of this noise in our head and expose it to the gospel and blow it open and let the fresh breezes come. There is so much garbage in our minds. So when the service shuts down because the toilet overflows and is falling on our worship leader who was standing on electric cable and I'm thinking, we're going to kill the worship leader? Do I go up there and stop that in the middle of the prayer? What's the priority here? What's going on here? And oh my goodness, this whole thing is falling apart. And by the way, I got up a song too early and I blew that. The Pharisee in my head says, golly, you're losing it. It's so good to just pull that out. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Write it down. Write the shaming lie down. And then put the corresponding biblical truth next to it. Two more. Share your shame story with people that you trust. I don't know what it is about this, and I don't say do this with anybody, but if you've got a couple of safe friends... And you can actually tell them what you are most ashamed of, your secrets. If you can share your secrets with a couple of safe friends, something gospelly happens. Something Jesus-y happens. And I think part of it is this that when you share the part of yourself you are most ashamed with, with two or three other men or women and whoever it is that you decide to share it with and you feel safe with, when you do that and they do not run out of the room and they sit there with you and they say, I love you, brother. Let's keep going. It's Jesus time. You know, I can preach on grace all night long and barely get anywhere with you, you sit down tomorrow morning with a friend over breakfast, tell them your secret. They accept you and pray with you. You've heard a sermon that'll change your life. Let's be a church that doesn't hide. Let's be a church that shares our secrets. And then last... Be curious instead of condemning when it comes to things that are wrong with us. I've noticed something about myself, and I think I mistake this as godliness, is that when I find something I don't like about myself, I default to the harshest kind of self-evaluation immediately. Why do I... God, I hate it when I do that. What is wrong with me? That is so disgusting. How could you ever think that way? What if... Instead of that, we said, huh, I'm really curious about that desire. Where does that come from? I wonder what that tells me about where I am in my life right now. I was talking to somebody once that was dealing with some sexual stuff, and he would just, flagellating and beating and beating and beating and beating and, and, and I just said, you know, just put the whip down for just a second, okay, we'll pick it back up we can just beat you all the way out the door you just put the whip down for a second could it be that that fall you had on the internet maybe it really doesn't have anything to do with sex could it be that the years are going by Your dreams aren't being fulfilled, and you're terrified of aging. I find that that kind of an approach opens up so much more of a possibility of true repentance than just, you're so filthy. You wouldn't treat your kids that way, you wouldn't treat your animals that way. Why would you treat yourself that way? So let's be curious. Instead of condemning. Let's end with this prayer. I think we got it. See if something I set up tonight works. There we go. Okay, good. Okay. Let's pray this together. Jesus, those who trust in you will never be put to shame. For you took our shame and made it yours. As a result, we now live in the present delight in eternal favor of God. Oh, even more blessed state of affairs, how can we ever praise you enough for such love? Therefore, Jesus, we cry out for freedom today, freedom in our ongoing struggles with shame, both the shame we feel and the shame we give. We need the freedom you alone can provide, Jesus, Bring the grace and truth of the gospel to bear in profoundly healing and liberating ways, Lord Jesus. Lord, that's our prayer tonight. And as we come to the table here in just a moment, we take the bread and we take the wine, please, Jesus, take this idea of your forgiveness and grace and press it into our hearts. Let us taste forgiveness tonight. Let us taste freedom. In your name, amen.